Love this podcast? Support this show through the Acast Supporter feature. It's up to you how much you give and there's no regular commitment. Just hit the link in the show description to support now. Welcome to Starship Sofa, part of the District of Wonders Network, featuring tales to terrify and the all-new Far-Fetched Fables. Everyone has a story in the District of Wonders. Come and find yours. This is the Starship Sova. Everybody, welcome. Hello and welcome to show 419. I am your host, Tony C. Smith. What a special show we have today. If this show doesn't get the hairs on your back of your neck going up, man, this is just science fiction goodness. I'll tell you what's coming in. First off, we have an interview with Louis Rosenberg, who is the founder of Unanimous AI. And this is why I like science fiction. This is not just why I like science fiction. This is why I love science fiction. Have a listen to this interview. And halfway through... The realisation what Unanimous AI are working towards and what the possibilities could be is just staggering. It was one of the best interviews. For me, it was just like a light bulb goes on. You think, that could be a possibility. Do you know what I mean? Just fantastic interview with Lois. Loved it. Then we have the main fiction, which is Bitter Remedy by Crystal Claxton. Then, right at the end, but not forgetting, we have our very own Amy H. Sturgis, who is 80 years old. <laughs> no, 80, looking back at genre histories. Oh, how cool is that? Talking about Star Wars again. Fant- Honestly, man, it's just a fantastic show. Ames, looking forward to this so much. <laughs> get straight in with Lewis Rosenberg. What are the, I mean, we always hear these kind of luminaries talking about, you know, like the dangers of artificial intelligence, but, you know, put the facts on the table. What are dangers from this artificial intelligence? Artificial intelligence uh, has all kinds of great possibilities. I mean, the, the ability for a computer system or uh, a software process to to be intelligent and, and do things for us is really attractive. The, the place where it gets dangerous or gets scary, at least to me, is when we ponder the future. And when we ponder the future, we can, we can presume that at some point, an artificial intelligence will match human intelligence and even potentially exceed human intelligence. And once that happens, uh, it becomes it becomes scary because they will be smarter than we are. Uh, they will be deeply connected to our our digital infrastructure. So they, they you know, an artificial intelligence can have lots of influence on our lives and on our society. They will be smarter than we are. And we have no reason to believe that they would share the same human morals, human values, uh, human intuition, or even the just the general objectives that we as people have. And so what we're, what we're doing when we're creating an artificial intelligence is we're leading towards a place where we will create another being, which is really, if you really create an artificial intelligence that's, that's genuinely intelligent, you're creating a new 
being that potentially is smarter than us and doesn't necessarily share the same goals and aspirations and sensibilities that we have. And so when that happens, what's what's to stop that artificial intelligence from actually having you know being in conflict with us? That's that's the scary thing. That's that's the dangerous part. And it gets even scarier when you consider the fact that once an artificial intelligence gets smarter than us, then it will be able to work on itself to make itself smarter. Like right now, we're the smartest ones on the planet. We're we're designing artificial intelligences. But once that artificial intelligence is smarter than us, then it will take the reins on improving itself because it's smarter than us. It, it should it should make itself smarter. And so we will just be left in the dust. It will keep getting smarter and smarter. And uh, and we have no reason to believe that it necessarily will share our values. Now, Lois, this is a bit of a kind of throwaway question, but would that not be in some sense like a bit of a, a decent payoff, do you know, just to kind of look after it and like all of say, the, the benefits this might bring to it? Yeah, we can talk about the kind of doom and gloom where it'll take over the world and everything, but in a kind of realistic way, will this not just help her a little bit more if we have got something? You know what I mean? Look at this. Sometimes the state of what's going on in this world today you i mean i i agree with you there's so much potential for artificial intelligence technologies to do good things and and that's what gets me excited about artificial intelligence is that we have so many problems that we need to solve and in, enhanced intelligence would would be great for us the place that it gets that it gets scary is that when we talk about an intelligence we assume that it's just like us we're th- we're in, imagining something that thinks the way we think. But if it's a purely artificial intelligence, it could seem very foreign to us. It could, you know, it could solve problems in a way that we think are morally reprehensible. And so it's it's easy to to imagine an artificial intelligence in our own image, but the reality I think of the way traditional artificial intelligence research is going, will create an artificial intelligence that could be very foreign to us, very seem almost like we're dealing with an alien intelligence rather than what we would consider to be something that that acts and seems and behaves and solves problems in a human way. Now, you're working with swarm intelligence and I was wondering, what is swarm intelligence? And is this not really, you know, again, artificial intelligence? You know, you're still on the same path heading towards those same disaster goals. So I, I, I work for a company called Unanimous AI, and we focus on developing artificial intelligence using swarms. And it's worth taking a step back and, and talking about uh, how, how most artificial intelligences are created. And so starting back in the 1950s, when people first started looking to, to creating artificial intelligences, they, they did a very obvious thing, which is they looked to nature. And they said, okay, how does nature do it? And the first place they looked was the most familiar. They looked inside of our own brains. And they said, oh, humans' brains are built up of neurons, and neurons connect together. And the field of artificial intelligence pursued this path called neural networks. 
And a neural network is basically a software model of what's going on in our head, and it's creating intelligence, uh, following nature's footsteps uh, digitally. Now, nature is not a one-trick pony. Nature actually has two ways that it's created intelligence. One is neural, the way brains work in our head. The other is, is swarms, a collective intelligence. And a, a, a collective intelligence or a swarm intelligence is where you, you build an intelligence not by having lots of neurons working together, but by having lots of individual organisms working together. And that's why birds f flock and fish form schools and bees form swarms because a swarm of bees together is, is infinitely smarter than uh, a – single bee by by itself. And I can give you examples about how bees behave, which are pretty interesting, but the to, to kind of wrap it up, what we focus on is creating what we call artificial swarm intelligence where we're connecting people. We're not connecting fish. We're not connecting bees. We're not connecting birds. We're, we're saying, can people achieve the same benefits that other organisms have achieved if we connect them over the internet so that they can think together as a single organism. And, and so it's a different approach to creating enhanced intelligence. The thing that, that makes us feel good about swarm intelligence as opposed to traditional artificial intelligence is that it keeps people in the loop. When we, when we create a swarm of 100 people or 500 people or 1,000 people and we allow them to think together to enhance their intelligence – we, we inherently have human values, human emotions, human interests built into the system because we're, we're connecting people. We're not replacing people. And so swarm intelligence is a way to achieve enhanced intelligence using software but still keep people in the loop. Are we looking a little bit too deep into this? Because I, I, I was wondering, because I, I read on your post as well, like you said, it's it's not crowdsourcing. It's not, you know, people doing votes or polls or surveys. Now, I would have thought, yeah, it might not be very tech-centric, you know, the good old-fashioned taking votes. But surely that might be swarm intelligence. Is that not the case? Votes and polls are definitely tap into a group's collective intelligence. And there's been – it actually goes all the way back to um, – to, 1906, uh, when the, there was uh, the very first studies of what people call the wisdom of crowds. And there was a scientist named uh, Sir Francis Galton who uh, was in the UK and actually did, uh, did a study of farmers where he was at a, uh, at a county fair and he, he had farmers guess the weight of an ox. And he had 700 farmers guess the weight of an ox, and they were almost all way off. As individuals, the farmers were way off. But when he took the average of all of those guesses of the weight of an ox, they were, they were correct to within like 0.1%. The average guess when you, when you harness the intelligence of the group was really, really powerful. And so you know, going back over 100 years – uh, it's the idea that groups are smart is uh, has been proven, and collective intelligence through through polls and votes and markets 
is is proven, but it's still worth looking at how nature figured it out because nature uh, doesn't take votes and it doesn't take polls. It forms swarms, and a swarm is is more sophisticated in that it's it's an actual system that has feedback loops so that the group actually adapts in real time. And instead of just everyone casting a single vote, they're basically negotiating. They're negotiating and finding common ground. And so, um, so again, polls and votes are they they are a, an initial way to tap the intelligence of groups. But when you when you bring people together in a swarm, you're actually tap you're you're actually harnessing the collective intelligence in in a in a deeper, more sophisticated way. How can we then implement this swarm technology? The great thing about swarm about swarming now is that the infrastructure, the, the difficult part of the infrastructure, has already been put in place, which is the internet. The internet allows us to connect uh, millions or billions of people uh, very, very quickly. And so, what's what's really been missing is the user interface, the ability, the the the, the actual glue that would allow people to work together in real time to to answer questions or make decisions as uh, as a system and so we've we've built a uh, a system we call unu that's u n u and uh, and we're building a, a platform called uh, that that's at the site unu.ai where anybody can can log in and join a swarm and as a swarm they can answer questions and uh, the way it works is there's there Somebody can ask a question. Anybody who logs in can ask a question. And the whole group sees that question at the exact same time, and they answer together by, by collectively pulling on a, a, glass, a glass puck. And this glass puck can be moved across the screen under the influence of 50 people at once, 100 people at once, 1,000 people at once, and, they will, and, and it, what you end up with is this real-time negotiation where everybody's pushing and pulling on this same glass puck. They can be logged in from the U.S., from the U.K., from China, from anywhere, but they're all working together, pulling and pushing on this glass puck, guiding it towards an answer, and the answer that emerges is it, it's the solution that best satisfies the combined knowledge and intuition and wisdom of that full group. And so uh, it's the the platform right now unu is we're currently in beta testing uh, we have people who uh, who are beta users and, and anybody who wants to be, become a beta user can sign up now and try it out and we've had people asking questions about all kinds of topics from uh, political questions to questions about movies uh, and it's the thing that we've discovered is that sw- people find swarming fun because when they're part of this swarm answering a question, they're just fascinated to see, well, what will the whole group come up with together? And very often the the answers and the predictions that these swarms make are extremely accurate, which makes the process even more fun. So, Lewis, am I getting this right? If I ask one question, will, will I get one answer back? But that's off a collective. So will I just see on my screen or, or a tablet or however – I'll get that one answer, which is obviously right. 
So you will, so you can ask a question, the question, and and you will get the answer back, and you'll actually see the answer form. And so it's not, it's not just. So you'll actually see the whole swarm moving the puck in real time to uh, to the answer. And so, um, the, you know, a question could be, you know, who's going to win? Uh, football game. We get we get a lot of questions about sports. People people are always wanting to predict the you know the outcome of sporting events. They say who's going to win a football game and by how many points. And you can have you know 500 people answer together and come up with their collective their collective decision. And the answers that that we get are almost always more accurate than than the vast majority of individuals would come up with alone. And in fact, we did a, we did a, an experiment earlier this year that we published, where we had a group of people predict the winners of the of the Academy Awards, the movies. And so uh, we we took the top fifteen movie, movie movie categories for the Academy Awards, and we asked the group to predict who would win the Oscar in each category. And we did it two ways. First, we just did it as uh, as a standard poll. So we had the group. Uh, just to answer on an online poll who they thought was going to win. And out of 15 questions, most people as individuals got six right out of 15 questions. And, and the questions get hard. I mean, best picture and best actor, not that hard, but best cinematography it gets pretty hard. And so six out of 15, not bad. Then we, then we did the standard wisdom of crowds method where we just took the most popular answer from the poll. And the group got seven right out of 15, which uh, is a little bit better and is what you'd expect when you're, when you're using a poll. Then we had the group answer the question as a swarm, and they got 11 right out of 15. So as a swarm, they went from six right as individuals to 11 right in predicting the Oscars. And it's because they've they, when working together as a swarm, they combined their, you know, the knowledge and intuition and wisdom and, and, emotions that they had about all these films together and they, they achieved, they achieved answers that were more accurate. And we see the same thing when they're talking about sports or they're talking about politics, or maybe they're just talking about things that are just fun and funny. And very often uh, we'll see swarms that are just, they're just coming up with funny things. It doesn't have to be a prediction. It doesn't have to be something serious. It could be, you know, they're coming up with captions for a picture as a swarm and they're selecting what they think is the funniest. And, uh, and again, you're, you're tapping into the collective view of this large group and it's, uh, it's always insightful and, um, and fun to watch it emerge, watch it emerge before your eyes. If, if we put more people in to the swarm, does the math get better? And does that mean, you know, the, the ratio of like looking into the future and getting it right increases? Right. That's I a great question. So. I hope so. <laughs> get me on question. that beat <laughs> I mean, it's a great question. And, and we, you know, we suspect that's the case. I mean, we're, we keep pushing for larger and larger groups. And right now we can, we're, we're doing swarms of, of hundreds of people. Uh, we, you know, we're pushing towards swarms of thousands of people, and we would expect that the, the groups get smarter as they as it gets larger. Um, that said, in nature, 
there are examples where swarms are really smart and they don't have to get very large. And so it's, it's interesting to, to look at bees and people, people know that bees form swarms, but they don't realize that bees actually think together as basically as a, uh, when, when they're in a swarm. And, and a really interesting thing about bees is that uh, honeybees, every, every year uh, when, when a swarm of honeybees reaches spring, they split, they split another group off that goes out and creates a new, to create a new colony. And so there'll be a group of 10,000 bees that are going to go off and find a new home. And that's a really important decision that this group of bees has to make. And, you know, people often hear about a queen bee and they think, well, the queen bee must make that decision. Well, no, the, the queen bee is, does, is not involved at all. The way this group makes the group of bees makes a decision is is as a swarm intelligence. And what they do is they send out hundreds of scout bees that will search over 20 or 30 square miles, find a whole bunch of candidate sites that could be a good homes for the bee. And so it could be uh, they might find 20 different locations in, you know, in trees or in, you know, holes and in rocks that could be good locations for this new hive to to migrate to. And they, it's a very complicated decision because it has the site that they find has to be the right size. It has to have the right amount of ventilation. It has to be safe from predators. And what, what they do is they they find these sites and then the group of bees comes back and and they form a swarm where by vibrating their bodies they can express their opinion about which of these 20 different locations they should the, the group should go to should migrate to and using this this swarm intelligence process where they're basically negotiating and as a group they almost always pick the optimal site that the that the swarm should go to in fact research shows that 80% of the time they pick the best site of all the available sites that they've found and what's fascinating is that no single individual bee is smart enough to make a decision that's anything close to that complex. They, they can't. The individual bees are not capable of making that decision. But when they pool their knowledge and they work together as a swarm, they can make a very complex and sophisticated decision. And so our, you know, our interest in swarm intelligence is to say, well, can we humans achieve that same level of of intelligence amplification if you know if, if little bees coming together can make more sophisticated decisions than any single individual could make can what what will happen when we humans come together in uh and pool our knowledge can we you know can we achieve the same level of of amplification you must have thought about you know where we can kind of implement this Lewis, I mean, you know, I'm just thinking, like, what kind of places or cultures, societies would, you know, grasp at this? Really, I mean, any place where where groups of people are making decisions, it's a great uh, it's a great way to to reach uh, to reach an optimal decision, to reach a um, a decision that reflects the views of of the group. And very often. Uh, um, when you have important decisions that, that govern a group, it could be inside of a, a company, it could be inside of a government, it could just be inside of a family, uh, you, you very often have decisions 
where people basically just take a vote and then they get entrenched in their in a view and you get these very polarized debates where two sides just split and they can never reach a decision they can never find common ground and as a result they don't they don't actually find the good decisions they just keep arguing and what's fascinating is that nature doesn't do that bees and fish and birds they don't do that this when you when you form a swarm intelligence you actually find common ground as opposed to getting entrenched in the extreme views. And so you know, our hope is that, that swarming is an alternative to, to polling uh, as a way to, to have groups make good decisions when they might not agree on – they might not agree on their first choice, but they can still find a, a middle ground that – that is actually best for the group. And, um, and so places where we can bring people together are the types of decisions that maybe would otherwise be more controversial where we're trying to, we're trying to break a log jam or we're trying to, to get out of – get groups that are entrenched to actually work together to find a, a solution that's, that's best for everybody. Are you a lone voice, Lewis, in, in this way? Or is there, is there actual companies out there? Because it just sounds fascinating, to be quite honest. And you think, yes, that's the way to go. Do you know what I mean? Is there other companies out there? Uh, it's, well, it's a very new field. And so we're, uh, we're the, the, really the, the first company that's out there working on swarm intelligence. But there's, there are researchers in, in research labs that are that are looking at swarm intelligence, looking at collective intelligence, there there are researchers that uh, that look that are looking at uh, these type of uh, these type of techniques for all kinds of things, from uh, from political decisions to medical diagnosis. Uh, medical diagnosis is another really interesting one where you might have a whole bunch of people who are experts in different aspects of medicine. And you want to be able to combine their knowledge and wisdom in an efficient way. And so um, swarming could be a great way to have groups who are specialized work together and come up with a, a singular decision. Uh, so it's, it's definitely a new field. It's definitely something that's, that's emerging. Uh, but there is research going on uh, in academics and, uh, and now uh, – with the with the UNU platform that that we've developed, we're making that we're making that tool available to any researchers who want to want to do their own studies about swarms, uh, because we we really want to see what what other folks will do with it. We you know we're creating the 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 tool, but we are encouraging other researchers to find unique applications. In the future, then, are we going to blend in, like see artificial? intelligence into this loop with humans or do you think it's best just leave it to the humans and, and go with the smart you know the swarm intelligence that way or do you think get in you know if and, and if ever artificial intelligence ever gets to that level where it is starting to think for itself would that make a happy i guess marriage it could and there's uh there actually are researchers who are working on what, what they call blended intelligence which is to find ways to to merge um, a purely artificial intelligence with uh, 
with human human swarm intelligence. And um, and I think it I mean, there's definitely things that computers and software are really good at. They're really good at processing large amounts of data. The place where where purely artificial intelligence uh, becomes becomes scary is when we start thinking about decisions, especially decisions that that we would want made that in, to, to incorporate values and emotions and sensibilities that we that we find to be human. And so if we can combine the the data processing abilities of software with the very human qualities that we people bring to a process, there's definitely there's definitely potential for um, for powerful and safe forms of artificial intelligence. I mean, this is a kind of an open question, but I was going to ask you, Lewis, you know, how smart can swarm intelligence get? And in itself, is that not a, you know, another danger to humanity? We don't yet know how smart a swarm intelligence can get. And that's one of the things that we're trying to, to quantify. And part of it uh, depends on, you know, what happens as swarms get larger and larger. Um, I, you know, you can definitely take the perspective that a swarm intelligence getting smarter and smarter could, you know, could have uh, some danger. But the alternative is a purely software intelligence. And so I see a swarm intelligence as a, a much safer alternative to just pure software because we're keeping humans in the loop. And the thing about the pure software work in AI is that it's not going to stop. I mean, AI research is is moving the fastest now that it's that it's ever moved. Companies are are putting billions into artificial intelligence research, and so this premise that software will get smarter than people is is becoming a real concern. And swarm intelligence is potentially a way for us people to stay competitive. You know, we we can't. We can't uh, put a, a, a faster processor inside our heads to make ourselves smarter the way that an AI can. But we, but we do have lots and lots of people who can combine their knowledge and wisdom and intuition and, and be, make better decisions as a group. And so you know, the, the thought is that swarm intelligence is a way for us humans to keep human sensibilities in in intelligent systems that stay that stay one step ahead of the purely software ais that will be uh that will be coming up behind us very quickly in in their intellectual abilities lewis it's been fascinating all i want you to tell us is if newcastle united is going to stay up in the premiership do you know what I mean? you can look in the future and tell us if newcastle united is going to stay there money well spent yeah. on your project that's right you know we if if we had a, a group of if a group of your listeners who are interested in that question uh, we could we could feel the swarm of them and have them actually answer that question as a group. And and if they, you know, if they're knowledgeable about the topic, you could actually probably make a pretty good a pretty good prediction. I think I could tell you the. I think the way <laughs> we're going. I think I can tell you what's going to happen there, Lewis. It's been honestly, it's fascinating talking to you. you know what I mean, it just gets the hairs on the back of my neck. Just kind of the excitement, you know, of it as well. It's just 
Brilliant. Thank you so much for coming on. Yeah, no, thanks for having me. It was, uh, it was fun. Lovely. Thank you so much, sir. Take good care. Okay, thanks. There you go. <laughs> Just, do you know what I mean? Anything I can help Newcastle United, do you know what I mean? Like you say, we don't need any swarms the way we're going. But man, that is just, oh God, honestly, that when we, when I was, you know, talking to Lewis and kind of having a little chat, you know, then like that realisation that, wait a minute, are you saying that this could happen? Do you know what I mean? You know, predicting the future almost, it was just like, oh, you know what I mean? Lewis is kind of working in that field and doing that, man. I'm stuck here in a kind of job like this. I want to do stuff like that. Just fantastic. Well, I'll tell you what I've got as well. Lewis has kind of given us this kind of PDF all about human swarm and human intelligence. Swarm intelligence. And it is great. Do you know what I mean? It is a kind of full-up document there. Come over, click on the button. You will see it there. Nice, big, bright yellow one. Get that off, Lewis. Nice little free gift. You'll sign up to our newsletter as well. Just awesome. If you've already signed up, mind you, don't worry. You'll still get your free gift. You'll not get signed up twice and get two lots of emails from us. But big thank you to Lewis for that. Whoa, just brilliant interview. That's, that's why I kind of do Starships Over, things like that. Another reason why I do Starships Over is a story like this, man. Oh, Crystal Claxton, Bitter Remedy. It was first published in Plasma Frequency magazine. I'll give you a little heads up about Crystal. Tragically born with a miscalibrated sense of humour, Crystal Carrington lives in nine, or has lived in nine US states before the age of 13. A combination of the two has left her with an oscillating accent and a habit of laughing at things that aren't funny. She currently lives in Georgia with a long-suffering spouse, a dog who thinks she's a cat, and a number of children that is subject to change. She enjoys breaking Heinlein's rules, getting distracted by Dragon Con. And furiously researched whatever random topic she's picked their interest. And I'll put a link on the Crystal Claxton so you can have a look, listen. I'll go over there and say hello to Crystal. Story is narrated by Karen Bovmia. Karen is, we know because we had Karen on having an interview with Jeremy from the, the Mothership Zeta magazine, if you remember that, which is part of that Escape Artists little syndicate over there. Karen hails from Iowa where she continues and contributes many hours of public service teaching the new writers and training the next generation of super scientists at the Iowa State University. Again, I'll put a link on to Karen's site as well, so please pop over there and say a big, big thank you to Karen. Lovely, lovely narration. Thank you so much. So, the Starship Sova is very proud to present Bitter Remedy by Crystal Claxton. I'm lousy in broad daylight. I spent my formative years learning from the best in the conference how to remain hidden, to move with fluidity and silence through a city, like a cloud in the night sky. Unfortunately, it was not night, I was not hidden, and I could not fly. I stood with my shoulders hunched, hands spread, as I watched the young villain standing in the road. He was bigger than me, most were, and he watched me with a certain satisfaction in his brown eyes. A smirk budded on his maskless face. He had me where he wanted me. That was the thing about being a healer. When you didn't have a partner, and your knife was shining merrily in the sun on the ground behind the villain, 
people tended to think you were helpless. I didn't catch your name. I stalled so pedestrians could clear the area. It had been a long time since Neville's burrow had suffered a superhero fight, and their flight responses were atrophied. The villain's mouth split in a broader smile, revealing neat rows of perfectly white teeth. The crimson number. Well, that explained the red costume with the white number two splashed across his torso and bleeding down onto his thighs. You know that doesn't make any sense, right? The number on your costume is white, your jumpsuit's red. His posture deflated a little. Plus, you know, if you're in this for a long-term career, I don't think number two is a great choice. I scrunched up my face. The gold mask that keeps my identity hidden was rigid against the expression. I mean, aside from it labeling you as second best, you know, it's also a euphemism for... Crimson Number launched himself across the pavement with an angry grunt, his fists held out like battering rams as he closed the space between us in the blink of an eye. I felt my ribs crack and caught a glance of my own gold-clad legs folding upward as his punch knocked me into the air. I lifted my head, flattened my back, and spread my arms to absorb the fall. The brightly painted wall of Sour Sally's smoothie shack stopped me with a solid thud. So then, Crimson Number had a touch of hyperspeed, just a touch since I'd seen him coming, and a bit of super strength but only a bit, since I was still alive and not liquefied against the restaurant wall. That explained how he'd managed to disarm me and toss me into the street before I spotted him. He was too young to realize the touch of power he had wouldn't get him very far as a villain, unless he was extremely clever. But he'd just robbed a bank in the middle of the day without so much as a mask to hide his identity, so he wasn't on the bright side. Crimson Number discarded the backpack with the cash from his heist and sauntered toward me while I struggled to get to my feet. You know, I thought Bitter Remedy was a pretty stupid name, too, but at least I have manners and didn't say so. His red, laced-up boots thunked heavily against the pavement. Was he really coming within arm's reach? The thing I don't understand, he continued as he stopped, towering over me, is why this neighborhood has been overlooked by the other villains. I mean, when I was hunting for a place to announce myself to the world, he gestured extravagantly toward his impressive physique. Neville's burrow just screamed out to me. He gripped the gold fabric of my costume at the shoulder and pulled me upright. I gasped. It was like daggers slicing from my ribcage to my toes. Over the years, I'd grown familiar with the sensation of going into shock of my internal organs rupturing. My vision blurred, my breathing sharp and shallow, but I had to stay alert, had to make it home to my son. What was the conference thinking? His other hand wrapped around my throat, squeezed, assigning you. I focused on his bare palm against my uncovered neck. I was still conscious. I still had time. I called my power from the well in the center of my chest. It stretched outward like a flexing muscle, building beneath my skin, tightening under Crimson Number's palm. He smiled, too elated at strangling me to notice the subtle aches and pains that would be blossoming in his neck. Blood pounded in my temples as his eyebrows twitched. He cleared his throat. His eyes watered. His smile faded as his teeth gritted tight. 
His grip loosened. His knees wobbled. He tried to let go, to break away, but it was too late. I gripped his forearm with both hands, peeling his sleeve up to touch the skin on his arm with the palm of my hands. My power surged down both arms, and the crimson number dropped to his knees, gasping for breath. The crushing pain in my chest faded to pinpricks, and at last I took a deep, luxurious breath. Crimson Number's eyes grew wide as he realized he couldn't do the same. I let him collapse face up on the sidewalk. Next time, do a bit of research. Just because I'm a healer doesn't mean I'm harmless. By the time the sirens announced the police, Crimson Number was turning an angry shade of violet. Still, he managed to choke down air. I'd held on to some of the injuries. It was worth it to spare a life. Crimson Number was so young, probably not even finished with high school yet. Maybe the villain reform program could rehabilitate him. Local news blared through my tiny apartment when I finally made it home from escorting the police to the rehabilitation center six boroughs east. Conley didn't look up as I dropped my keys on the kitchen counter. The tube TV cast weak blue angles over the orange glare of dusk pouring through the living room window. I flopped onto the second-hand couch that divided the two rooms. Conley was perched in front of the TV, watching me, as bitter remedy, fly across the screen, a gold blur that ragdolled against Crimson Number's attack. The voiceover announced, Veteran superheroine, bitter remedy, fatally injured during Neville's Burrow skirmish. I leaned past my son to switch off the broadcast. The sounds of downstairs neighbors cooking dinner pressed into the apartment. You know they're just trying to get ratings, I said to the back of his head of brown spiral curls. In his sullen, nine-year-old way, he shrugged. They're wrong. I'm not fatally wounded, see? I held my arms up in a ta-da gesture, forced a smile despite the sharp reminder that my ribs weren't quite healed. He twisted around to face me, his eyes bloodshot. You were so fatally wounded. If the bad guy hadn't got so close, you'd... Would have been fine. Didn't look it. Well, it looked a lot worse than it was. You couldn't even stand up. Conley, I warned in the mom voice, please do not raise your voice. He glared at me instead, his eyes dark and perfect. His brown skin glowed in the evening light, his nose an adorably round button. He had my high cheekbones, but that's about it. I couldn't look at him without trying to cobble together what his father's face must look like. What if I order pizza tonight? I'm not four. You can't just make it better with pizza. <sighs> I let out a noisy breath. What do you expect me to do? Watch him rob the bank? This is my neighborhood. I have a responsibility to our citizens. To the conference. To you, I didn't say. He straightened, looking ready to pounce. Other heroes have partners. No, we have had this conversation. Partners are dangerous. They get in your life, figure out your secrets, know your identity, and then they turn villain. Maybe if it was someone you trusted. The statement was too calm. His eyes locked onto me like a kitten's on a grasshopper. I've been a member of the conference for 12 years. I know a lot of heroes. There isn't one I want as partner. If you would te- Absolutely not. 
I hadn't meant to sound so harsh. Conley, there are federal laws against underage sidekicks. Besides, you don't have powers. He looked away. I might have powers. If we start training now, I could be ready to help you, he gestured at the TV, the next time you really need it. I rubbed both hands over my face. I'd had a double shift at the diner, then the fight, then the trip to secure the villain. I was ready to be done. You've got another ten years before any powers you have will manifest. Some people get powers young. I slapped my hands against my knees and fixed him in a glare. I will not have my son out in the streets battling villains when he's supposed to be in school. But I've worked hard to make this a safe place for us. I requested Nevillesboro specifically because I knew it would be quiet, because I knew I could defend it on my own. Today was a fluke, a fluke that I handled like the trained professional I am. I do not need help. I took a breath tried to soften my voice, ran the back of my fingers over his cheek. I'm sorry that you had to see me fight today, but that doesn't mean you get to waste your time heroing. You know, you might not ever get powers. He huffed and started to protest, but I continued over him. It may seem like something you want now, but if I had my say, you would be normal and live a long, happy, normal life. I climbed my patrol route across rooftops and fire escapes, inhaling the distinct nighttime aroma of summer in the city. Baked asphalt, soured sewers, thick humidity, and a faint lingering of charcoal briquettes. It smelled of home, and with my injuries healed, things were back to normal. When I neared the only full-service bank in Neville's borough, I saw a slight shifting shadow. My heart skipped a beat. Most people would have dismissed the wavering night, but I recognized light manipulation instantly. He wasn't visible per se, but I could tell that he was perched on the rooftop across the street from the bank. I doubled back around to approach him from behind, walking lightly across the flat roof. Neighboring buildings towered a story or two overhead. Out for a walk, I asked when I drew near. Most people don't notice me, Glint said as he stood dropped the shadowy concealment. His black bodysuit hid any distinguishing feature except for an emblazoned red G on the center of his toned chest. The stretchy black fabric covered his head, leaving the vague imprint of a face beneath. I guess that makes me special. I cocked a curvy hip. It would be easy to fall back into an old pattern with glint. Remy, he said, it's been a long time. I crossed gold-covered arms over my chest, resolving to control my body language. Yes, it has. What brings you to Nevillesboro? He inclined his head toward the street. Right now, I'm waiting for someone to start robbing your bank so I can intervene. My brow furrowed, pressing uncomfortably against my rigid mask. When Glint knelt by the edge of the roof, using the knee-high parapet as cover, I joined him. He gestured with one long, gloved hand. There, in the alley, been loitering for twenty minutes, avoiding the cameras there and there. Who is it? I asked. I can't tell, he said. You don't know? Not yet. Then what were you doing here before you noticed them? I didn't try to hide my annoyance as I squinted into the night. The suspect wore a skin-tight suit beneath their long, ill-fitting coat, 
but they stayed out of the yellowed light cast by street lamps. Glint was staring at me when I turned my attention back to him. I wanted to talk to you about what happened with the Crimson Number. <laughs> I let out a dismissive snicker that was too loud and then compensated for it by using an unnecessarily soft voice. Then you're wasting your time. Go home. I made for the fire escape. He called after in a hushed voice, What about the bank robber? I whispered, Go home. On the street, I waited at the hard edge of a shadow for the would-be robber to make a move. Felt Glint's presence materialize behind me. I do not need your help. That's not what it looked like on the news last week. I turned to face him. Have I ever come to any of your towns and critiqued your work? Ever? In ten years? He had no answer. Look, I've got this. Please just go back to wherever it is you're working now. I didn't say that I knew he was partnered with Pascal's wager upstate. Didn't want him to know. I kept tabs on him. Glint's body heat radiated into the space between us. His clean scent tinged the night air. The urge to lean into him to press my bare palms against his mesh-textured suit rose up from a place ten years past. I tried to pull away, but there was nowhere to go without stepping into the light. A rumble vibrated deep in my chest, shaking my insides. We turned to the bank, to the alley, a trench coat on the ground, a purple costume with silver piping, long flowing locks of golden hair. Acoustic calamity. I'd never encountered acoustic calamity before, but I'd studied the conference's archives, called her power to mind. Sound manipulation. Her hands were cupped around her mouth and pressed to the brick wall of the bank as the world shook around them. The woman could make everyone in a six-block radius deaf in a heartbeat. This was her attempt at subtlety. The bricks turned to dust under her focused voice. As she pushed through the wall into the bank, I darted across the street. The bank's alarm would have already alerted the police. I had to subdue her before they arrived, and she popped the eardrums of every officer on the Neville'sboro payroll. I pressed against the cracked bricks next to the gaping hole in the wall, glanced back, but didn't see Glint, hoped he'd listened, and left town. More likely, he was moving in on acoustic calamity in his own concealed terms. The lobby was empty. With quick, silent steps, I made my way to the back of the bank. Acoustic calamity stood before the vault, considering the dense metal. She didn't notice me sneaking down the hall as she cupped her hands around her mouth again, pressing her face close to the vault door. I stumbled when the quaking shook the ground, rattled my bones. I decided against my knife. If I could get an arm around acoustic calamity's neck, or could overpower her and compress her chest, well, sound manipulation isn't much use when you can't draw a breath. I crept up behind, raising my arms to sneak them around her body. Just when I coiled to pounce, the vibration of the building paused. Acoustic calamity stopped to draw a deep breath. She glanced over her shoulder casually, as though she knew I wouldn't have arrived on the scene yet. I threw myself at her, clutched her windpipe closed as I tried to leverage her legs out from under her. Acoustic calamity stumbled backwards, but kept her feet on the ground. Just as I was beginning to wonder why she was defending herself with only one hand, I saw the stun gun. Too late. Muscles in my abdomen contracted. Breath filled my lungs in a whoosh. I lost my grip on Acoustic Calamity's neck and tripped backwards, falling to the ground. She bent over me, 
taking a deep, menacing breath. A single electric blue line of light cut between us, cleanly slicing off several blonde locks of hair that had spilled over Acoustic Calamity's shoulder. A laser. Glint and his light manipulation. I gritted my teeth, lunged, a shoulder tackle, and we tumbled down in a heap of gold and purple. I clamped both hands around her neck, blocking off my enemy's powers, pinned her shoulders to the floor with my knees. As if on cue, sirens echoed down the street. Glint materialized beside me as I worked to keep the suffocating villain under control. Acoustic calamity gave one last wrenching twist before surrendering. After acoustic calamity was secured, I disengaged from the officers on the scene. I had to travel to the detention center again, and the prospect of another long, sleepless night, followed by a shift at the diner, made me anxious to get rid of Glint. I didn't need him snooping around my town. I found him on the roof of Neville's Auto Loan, across the street from the bank, the same place I'd found him before. See, I said, I've got everything under control. He appraised me. It looks sketchy there for a minute. I don't have time to deal with you. If you have a problem with the way I manage my borough, then file a complaint with the conference. I spun on my heel to leave, but then he was beside me, gripping my arm, turning me to face him. Remy, please just talk to me for a second. I pulled away from him but stayed, crossing my arms over my chest. Fine. What do you want to talk about? I went to see the laudable ladybug. My second partner, after Glint, though it had been several years since we'd worked together. How is she? She saw the fight. She was worried. Right. Everybody's so worried. After years of no one caring how I got on, now everyone's concerned? Us not caring? You're the one who walked out on Lady. Hurt her feelings, I think. And that was true. Lady had gotten too close and nearly found out about Conley on more than one occasion. I said, aren't you the one who taught me that you can't trust anyone, even your partner? She wanted to know my identity, so I asked to be reassigned. You asked to go solo. That's not something healers do. I am not a normal healer. Maybe, or maybe you're hiding something other than your identity. The sounds of police investigation on the street below faded into nothing. My stomach did odd loop-de-loops. Did he know? It wouldn't be hard to figure out. The child looked a little like me. I figured if Glint got one good look at Conley, he would see his own face. He asked, Are you sick? Were you afraid that if the conference found out, you'd get benched? Is that what you're hiding from me? Me hiding secrets from you? I almost laughed. I was so relieved. I'm the one who showed you my face. I trusted you. You're the one who wouldn't so much as look me in the eye. Well, you were right. It's safer not to let anyone know who I am, and the easiest way to do that is by working alone. His hands clenched, his posture tensed, but he didn't deny it. I might have been the one who walked away, but he was the one who ended our relationship. Why are you even here? I asked. His voice was quiet. I was worried about you. Worried because of one stupid broadcast, and yet never concerned all those years I managed to stay out of the headlines. Okay, I said. You were worried. Now you see, I'm fine. Go back to your new partner. I could see that my words stung, but I had more important things to worry about than my ex-boyfriend's feelings. Remy, take off your mask. He froze, uncertain. 
I must have caught him off guard, because he'd never hesitated before. The answer had always been no. His hands clenched and opened, clenched and opened. Was he actually considering it? Please, Remy, just go, Clint. I don't need you. When I walked away this time, he didn't try to stop me. Conley was late. A week after acoustic calamity, my injuries were healed, but Conley was still sullen. It was too dangerous for him to be out alone, so during summer break, he was stuck with our neighbor, Miss Ruth, while his friends were off to summer camp. I compromised by letting him walk by himself to the diner for lunch every day. I checked the clock on the wall again, asked if the cute old couple in my section needed coffee refills without really seeing them ran my thumb back and forth over the familiar groove in the coffee pot's handle as I refilled the mugs at a table of off-duty cops I knew, but who didn't recognize me in my civvies. I wandered into Julie's section and refilled the mug of a man sitting alone without bothering to ask if he wanted more. I checked the side street outside the diner's window. Conley waited at the crosswalk for traffic to clear. "'You're late,' I chided when he entered. "'Sorry, Mom.' I crossed the diner to guide him toward my section, happy to feel his small shoulders beneath my fingers. Can I have some chocolate milk? Did you finish your reading assignment? No. If you work on it right now, I'll score you some chocolate milk. Thanks. He unzipped his backpack. I maneuvered around the diner's long counter to fish a bottle of chocolate milk out of the cooler. Julie was speaking to someone. There was something about the pitch of her voice that drew my attention. When I turned to see what had startled her, a man was rushing out the door. One of the off-duty police officers eyed the diner's still-swinging door, but seemed to lose interest when Julie lifted a $20 bill from beneath the coffee mug. How could I have been so distracted? I hadn't even looked at the man's face when I filled his cup. I ran to the door, Conley's milk in hand, and stepped onto the sidewalk. The man was jogging, already up the block. His head of short, cropped, dark hair ducked down as he turned the corner, out of view. Something familiar about his movements. No, it couldn't be, but he was Glint's height and Glint's build. Conley was on the sidewalk next to me now, his face creased in confusion. What's going on? he asked. I looked down at the son, who looked so very little like me. Every night for the next two weeks, I gave Glint the slip. I understood his abilities the way few people did. On my home turf, he had no chance of finding me when I didn't want to be found. He seemed to give up. At least, I hoped he'd given up. The summer months passed with little activity. Taking down acoustic calamity had repaired the damage to my reputation. No more villains challenged my small burrow. No more heroes visited to question my abilities. Conley had calmed down, too. I hadn't offered him a reason when I told him he wasn't allowed to eat at the diner anymore. Taking away his bit of independence should have caused an epic struggle but he had recovered after a couple of days. I came home early one August night to spend a few hours helping Conley finish his summer assignments before school started again. Only Conley wasn't there. Mrs. Ruth should have been in our apartment with him, but I found the gray-haired neighbor at home in the apartment next door. Wait, what did he say? I asked. The woman weaved her arthritis-swollen fingers together just to untwine them again. He said you'd found a scholarship for the day camp at that park. How long has this been going on? Weeks, almost two months. I thought you knew. We have breakfast when you leave for work, and I wait for him at your apartment after he gets back. I'm so sorry. 
I waved away her apology. It wasn't her fault. It was my responsibility to take care of Conley. When does he normally come back? Any minute now. Thank you, Mrs. Ruth. I shouldered the door into my own apartment. How long had he been gone today? Seven hours? A little longer? How far away could he travel and still make it back? I considered all of the communities surrounding Nevelsboro. The drugs in Maylandville, the gangs in Wilstonboro. Maybe he really had gone to day camp. The lock on the front door jiggled. I charged across the room and flung the door open. Conley stood in the hall, eyes wide, eyebrows high, keys clutched in his small fist. He was a mess, covered in dust and dirt smears. His shorts revealed freshly skinned knees, and his old shoes were covered in mud. Inside, now. Jaw set, he shuffled in. I yanked one of the kitchen chairs out from under the table, turning it towards him. Sit. I paced between the front door and the kitchen sink, the small space doing little to contain my agitation. Everything was okay. He was home safe now. I just needed to figure out what was going on and handle it. Are you okay? He hesitated. Uh, yes. You're not hurt. Conley's shoulders slumped forward. A guilty look played across his features. No, Mom, I'm fine. I knelt in front of him, running my fingers lightly over his skinned knees, pulling my power to his scrapes. They faded, and light pain blossomed on my knees, my pants adhering to the fresh stickiness of missing skin. I stood and leaned against the kitchen counter. Want to tell me where you've been? No answer. If you tell me now, I promise I won't lose my temper. Okay, he said. I was with a hero named Glint. What? You said you wouldn't lose your temper. Conley tried to shrink away as I launched off the kitchen counter and knelt down at his eye level, gripping the back of the chair in either hand. I know what I said. What did you say? I was with Glint. He's a hero. I can show you. He's on the affiliate roster of the conference's webpage, like you. My hair fell across my shoulders as I bent my face away from his. Of course it was Glint. And I had feared Conley might have joined a gang. Why were you with Glint? What did he want? Conley waited until I met his eyes to answer. He's teaching me to be a hero. I gripped the chair so tightly my hands shook, forced myself to stand. Go to your room. But I've heard enough. You're not going with him anywhere anymore. You're grounded. With practice grace, I moved from alley to rooftop to alcove. I made it easy for Glint to find me, standing in the open on the rooftop of Neville's auto loan. I recognized the faint wavering of shadows even before he unveiled himself and stepped into the soft light cast by the street lamps below. His posture was tense, his hands open where I could see them, but he didn't expect an attack. Head high, shoulders back, I strode toward him with purpose. He managed only to say, Remy, before I grabbed his costume at the shoulder. I pulled him forward, kicked his legs out from under him, and turned my hips to plant him on his back on the rough ground. Lightning quick, I pinned his shoulders with my knees and wrapped my hands around his neck. I squeezed tight enough for him to understand that I was serious. How dare you call me that? He was tall, strong. If he wanted, he could get out from under me. I had no doubt of that. Instead, he rested his fingertips against my forearm. Please. No, I squeezed harder. You don't get to show up in my town. You don't get to invade my life. 
His hand wrapped gently around my wrist. Okay. His voice was too calm. Okay. I'm sorry. I studied the black mask, the rise and fall of his features beneath. I'd once found it mysterious, charming. How I'd grown to hate that mask. I hated also that my anger wavered at his touch, at his familiar voice. I released him, put a few paces between us, gulped the thick summer air. Glint waited, his face turned toward the ground, his arms limp at his sides. He looked helpless. You shouldn't have come here, I said evenly. I was worried. It's time for you to leave. I can't, he said. Yes, you can, and you will. I have conference sanctions over this neighborhood, and I can take care of myself just fine. Been doing it for years. And why is that, exactly? He straightened, his chest puffing up as he challenged me. It's clear that you can do this solo, but why do you choose to? Why did you push Ladybug away? Why have all your old friends lost contact with you? It's none of anybody's business what I do, so long as the job gets done. He moved closer now keeping to the light. It had always been so hard for him to be in the open. He didn't have any special toughness or healing. His best defense was staying hidden. I've seen what it's like for you to try to work alone. There's a good reason why you've isolated yourself. His tone took on a certain fragile quality as he asked, You want to tell me what that reason is? I hugged my arms over my chest. Glint took another step, brushed the palms of his hands against my shoulders. Were you ever going to tell me? No, you didn't want me. It didn't seem like you'd want him either. Glint ran a single finger under my chin to force my gaze up toward his face. My lip quivered, but he couldn't see my eyes, my brow, any better than I could see his. It was such a soulless exchange, even as the tears slipped from under my mask. You were the only thing I've ever really wanted. I was just too young and too afraid to tell you the truth. I shuddered, a silent ripple I couldn't keep inside anymore. He pulled me close, his warmth soaking through me. You knew that day. You told me to show you my face or find a new partner. You came to me looking for support and I blew it. I'm so sorry. I pulled away, wiped at the tears. The fabric of my gloved fingers didn't absorb liquids well, so I only managed to smear the wetness. No, I should have told you. He nodded his agreement at that. It didn't change anything. He'd never trust me. Not then. Not now. What were you thinking? Training a child like I wouldn't find out? He held his palms up. He was already training, out in the open, where anybody could see him using... What? Conley has powers. No, he doesn't. He's been trying to keep it a secret from you, he said. Emphatically, no, he doesn't. Glint only watched me. He's nine years old. He's too young to manifest, I said. There is a precedent for manifesting in childhood. Right, like El Capitan Universo or Mistress Omnipresence? Yes. Like them, he said. <laughs> a skeptical laugh trickled out, though it wasn't at all funny. You think he has prime-level powers? Glint didn't shrink from the answer. Yes. If he was right, 
It would mean that my son had near limitless potential. There would always be some villain, crisis, disaster that demanded his attention. He'd be beyond famous. He would never find peace. What am I going to do? Glint said, I think given our situation, we can get him help from the conference. We? His fists bawled. I'm not asking anything from you, except for you to let me help protect him. Does he know? That I'm his father? No, but I couldn't leave once I figured I... Hot blood splattered across my face. The synthetic fabric of Glint's costume took on an oily glimmer as blood saturated the area beneath his collarbone. He collapsed. Then I was airborne, wind driven from my chest. Training trumped instinct, and I rolled when I hit the ground, assessing the scene. I wasn't injured, but I'd been thrown to the opposite side of the roof. A figure stood between me and Glint. The villain was tall and lean, his costume a mesh of pixelated colors that helped him blend into the nighttime scenery. His mask covered everything except a handsome smile. Bitter remedy. So nice to see you well. Beyond the villain, Glint was gasping for breath, drowning in his own blood. The figure leveled a pistol at me. A silencer added disproportionate length to the muzzle. You have me at a disadvantage. <laughs> he laughed. There are those who call me the Crimson Number. My breath caught in my throat. I called his powers to mind, strength and speed, and now, a gun. I crouched ever so slightly, shifting my weight to reach for the knife in my boot. The crimson number cocked the pistol. A single click served as warning. I took your advice, he offered. I did my homework this time. You have accelerated healing and can absorb or inflict wounds, but you can't transfer an injury if you're not hurt. All you need is skin contact. Your boyfriend he tilted his head toward Glint, can control light for concealment or to create lasers, but he doesn't have a bit of toughness or healing or invulnerability. He smiled again. So then, a gun is the most effective weapon. One bullet in him first since he's the real threat, a second in you before you can get close and before you get injured. Simple. I swallowed hard. Next, I'll make a stop at 44 Peachtree Avenue, apartment B9, and add an emerging prime to my resume. My heart sank into my stomach. To dodge a bullet at such close range, I'd need to move before he fired, but hyperspeed gave him enough time to correct his aim. Crimson Number said, Thanks for all your help. Goodbye, bitter remedy. A light flared in Crimson Number's face. Glint's tactics. I closed my eyes and ducked my head as I drew my knife and charged on the night-blind villain. I grabbed his wrist and twisted, using my momentum to drive the knife cleanly through the meat of Crimson Number's forearm. His muscles and tendons skewered, the gun clunked to the ground. Almost faster than sight, Crimson Number clamped his other gloved hand over my face, hefted me off the ground. I reared back with the knife, but he slung me across the roof. I landed on Glint, lost the knife. He tried to support me as I groped the ground for my weapon, but his grip on my arm was weak. His other hand clenched over his wound. Crimson number was a blur of urban camouflage in the night. Then he stood over us, gun in hand once again. He didn't stop to boast this time as he leveled the pistol. Mom! From the adjacent rooftop, a thin figure in a blue mask drew the villain's attention. The gun pointed at my son. 
Glint's hand came up, glistening with blood, but he was too weak to call any power. I lunged to put myself between the gun and the child. The ground heaved. The flat rooftop beneath us lurched and warped. Crimson Number stumbled, fell, but he didn't fall to the ground. The ground rose up to meet him. It flared out in five directions, a giant hand made of asphalt membrane that bent and flexed to squeeze him against its palm. I looked up at Conley in wonder. He held his hand out, motioning as the building stretched and buckled beneath us to accommodate his wishes. He squeezed his fist, and the building's grip tightened around Crimson Number. Somewhere in the back of my mind, I noted his power. Matter control. Crimson Number became limp in the morphed roof hand. The gun slid down the slope of the roof wrist, pinging off my toe as it skittered away. Crimson Number wasn't fighting anymore. He didn't seem to be conscious anymore. Conley was still squeezing. I wasn't prepared to watch my son become a murderer, but I wasn't sure I had the power to stop him either. Conley! My voice was too weak, glint motionless beside me. There wasn't time to talk him down slowly. Glint needed me now. I summoned the mom voice. Stop, Conley! Let him go! Now! He faltered, his arm trembling, his masked face turning towards me. That's enough. Put him down. Slowly at first, then all at once, Conley unclenched his hand. Crimson number lay limp in the open roof hand. The ground settled beneath me. I didn't check that the villain would live. I turned my full attention to the dying hero. He was unresponsive when I rolled him onto his back, tearing away my mask to get a look at the wound. Blood coated everything. I ripped open his costume at the shoulder and pressed both my naked palms to his red-tinted skin, ignored the sticky feel of his cold flesh, closed my eyes, and focused on calling my power. The familiar pressure burst down both my arms, rippling like a second set of muscles. My power leaked into him, searching for some spark to latch onto, some peace to restore. His hurt rose to meet me, and I siphoned it greedily, teeth gritted against the blossom of pain beneath my collarbone. I pulled it into myself, not stepping to check if he started breathing as I struggled to draw breath, not opening my eyes to see if he regained consciousness when I grew dizzy. Long fingers wrapped around the hands I pressed to his chest. A voice sounded muffled, like it carried underwater. Stop. I opened my eyes. Glint was trying to push me away. I ignored him and folded his injury inward, absorbing his hurt. Remy, enough, he struggled to say. The idea seemed foreign, incomprehensible. Mom, Conley's voice, Mom, you have to stop. He's okay. Glint was sitting up now, supporting my weight. I was half collapsed on top of him. With a shuddering breath, I relaxed my power. Should we take her to the hospital? Conley asked in a voice pitched high with worry. He'd made it down to us at some point. How long had I been healing Glint? With a great force of will, I pulled away from Glint, sitting up under my own power. The angry wound in my chest had soiled my gold uniform, but the seepage was slowing. I'm okay. Conley clutched his balled-up mask, looked from me to Glint and back. Let's give her a minute, Glint decided. Conley was probably right. Even with accelerated healing, I felt awful. 
needed medical attention. Glint, too, since I hadn't taken his entire wound before they'd stopped me. But that was in the future, where I'd have to deal with my son as a prime and my ex-boyfriend back in my life. I glanced over the still form of the villain in the distorted grasp of the roof to see his chest rise and fall. For a moment, I wanted only to sit very still. Glint obliged, keeping me steady with a hand under my elbow. He turned his attention to Conley. You did good for your first time out. The boy beamed. I didn't know I could do that until I saw him, a furtive glance at the suspended villain. With a gun like that. Glint said, I think there's a lot you can do that we don't know about yet. Conley turned to me. I, I get to keep training with Glint now, right? Through lingering dizziness, I considered my son. I guess that's up to Glint. We turned to the silent man. He didn't look at either of us as he weighed his answer. At length, he reached up, gripped the top of his mask in hand, and pulled it off. My mouth hung open. After more than a decade of secrecy, he looked me in the eye. The resemblance to Conley was unmistakable. Actually, he said, my name's Brian. There you go. Don't forget, copyright is Crystal's. Crystal, thank you so much. This is just a fantastic story. Thank you so much indeed. And Karen, what can I say? Big hugs, big hugs in, indeed. Thank you so much. So, for the 80th time, <laughs> Amy H. Sturgis. Hello, ladies and gentlemen, and Happy New Year. I hope your 2016 is off to a great start. It's time for another look back into genre history, and if I have done my edition correctly, this is my 80th, that is 8-0, 80th looking back into genre history segment. So, a bit of an anniversary, and today I would like once more to talk about Star Wars from a different angle than I have in my last two segments. Now, don't worry if you haven't yet seen The Force Awakens. There will be no spoilers here, so you are safe to listen. In fact, I recorded this in December, so I haven't seen the film yet either. Although, by the time you hear this, I will have. Oh, so many times. What I'd like to do today is talk about the historical inspiration behind one of the major themes of the prequel trilogy, and that is the question of how a republic becomes an empire. George Lucas has said, and I quote, This idea of a democracy being given up, and in many cases being given up in a time of crisis and fear, you see it all throughout history, whether it's Julius Caesar or Napoleon or Adolf Hitler, you see these democracies under a lot of pressure, in a crisis situation, who end up simply giving up a lot of the freedoms they have and a lot of the checks and balances to somebody with a strong authority to help them get through the crisis, end quote. So what you have here is George Lucas being interested in how people lose their liberty, not because some dictatorial power comes and takes it, but because they choose to give it up. So what I'd like to do is put my historian's hat on and unpack the 
ideas in this quote, look at the historical examples upon which Lucas built and how their resonances are seen in the prequel trilogy. So let's start with Rome. There are clearly visual echoes in the prequel trilogy, whether you think of the Senate chamber, think of the look of the Jedi archives, certainly the arena sequence in Attack of the Clones, bringing visuals from the sort of Roman aesthetic there. I'd like to quote Alex Stark of Stark After Dark Online. Alex says, Not surprisingly, Lucas follows the American stylization of the Roman Republic, and the mythic narrative, which dates back to the Romans themselves, at least Romans such as Tacitus, of the virtuous Republic, the ideals of which were betrayed from within and replaced by the Empire. Lucas simply replays this narrative with the Galactic Republic as the Roman Republic, Senate and all, and Emperor Palpatine as a combination of Julius Caesar. Now, here, I'm going to make a quick aside, just to remind you that Julius Caesar invaded Italy with an army, was made dictator for a year by the Roman Senate. By that point, his opponents had already fled, and that just left his supporters or those in the Senate who could be swayed. Then the Senate renewed his dictatorship for a year, then renewed it for a decade, and by 44 BCE, he names himself Perpetual Dictator, packs the Senate with supporters, gets the power to veto the Senate, and finally he is assassinated. Okay, now back to Alex Stark. And his nephew Octavian, the men who successively replaced the Republic with the Empire, under Octavian as the first Roman Emperor, Augustus. I'll point out here that by the time the Senate calls him Augustus in 27 BCE, you have straight up an empire, not a republic. Okay, back to Stark again. Of course, Star Wars plays out differently from Roman history. Unlike Julius Caesar, Palpatine successfully fights off attempted assassination, with the Jedi playing the part of the senatorial conspirators in history, and steps directly into the role of emperor himself. And as a Sith Dark Lord, Emperor Palpatine also has a touch of the depravity and self-deification of Caligula and Nero. So good stuff there from Alex Stark. Now I want to go to an essay called I, Sidious, Historical Dictators and Senator Palpatine's Rise to Power. That was written by Tony Keene and published in the collection Star Wars and History. And Keen says, quote, There are, of course, a number of differences. Star Wars is far from being a slavish presentation of the history of Rome. Most clearly, Star Wars differs in the overt nature of Palpatine's imperial project, once it is brought into the open. In Revenge of the Sith, Palpatine stands in front of the Senate and proclaims the Galactic Empire. Quote, in order to ensure our security and continuing stability, the Republic will be reorganized into the First Galactic Empire for a safe and secure society. End quote. The enthusiasm of the Galactic Senate for Palpatine's proclamation of the Galactic Empire, which is greeted with loud applause, is paralleled by the Roman Senate's enthusiasm for Julius Caesar. Padme Amidala and Bail Organa watch on as the orator Cicero did in Rome. And, of course, this is where you get that iconic quote from Amidala, so this is how liberty dies with thunderous applause. Now let's move on to the French example. 
And if you're looking for a little bit of fun online, I would recommend Googling Napoleon and Star Wars. There is some great fan art out there. There is artwork depicting Napoleon not on horseback, but on a tauntaun. You can also find fan art taking some of the classic portraits of Napoleon and inserting the face of Palpatine or the face of Darth Vader instead. Lots of nods there to the Napoleonic inspiration behind the Republic to Empire idea. Let's go back to Stark with Stark After Dark. Stark writes, History never repeats, but sometimes it rhymes, and France rhymed with Rome in the First Republic and the Napoleonic Empire. Like Rome, France went from a monarchy to a republic after a revolt against monarchy, and was then subverted to empire under a charismatic military leader. And Stark is right there. Uh, the French had declared themselves a republic in 1792, in 1799, as one of France's most successful generals, he had fought pretty much nonstop from 1792 onward, Napoleon became one of three consuls who was supposed to rule France for ten years. He spent some years as consul, just like Palpatine spent some years as senator. He exploited his position, uh, getting himself named first consul and then emperor in 1804 a move, I should point out, that was approved by a large majority of the French citizens in a referendum vote. Again, so this is how liberty dies, right? In his coronation oath in 1804, he said he was assuming the role of emperor to maintain the integrity of the territory of the republic, not unlike Palpatine saying this was for a safe and secure society. And Napoleon eventually met his fall at Waterloo, which, for our purposes, might as well have been indoor, complete with furry Ewoks. All right, moving on then to the Nazi Germany example. Much has been made of this, I'm sure you're already aware. For example, the Imperial uniforms in Star Wars were based on the uniforms of Nazi officers, and even the term Stormtrooper finds its origins there. I would recommend a very good series, ongoing series, on StarWars.com, written by Cole Horton, and it is called From World War to Star Wars. Some great articles there. But what I just want to point out, painting this with very broad brushstrokes, is that Palpatine's rise to power in Star Wars mirrors Adolf Hitler's in Germany. Both used democracy to get power. Right, The Republic's legislature in Germany, the Reichstag, voted Hitler into the office of chancellor in the same way that Palpatine was voted into the office of chancellor by the Senate of the Galactic Republic. There's a relevant quote from American reporter Dorothy Thompson in Berlin, and it goes like this, quote, Hitler's movement was going to vote dictatorship in, in itself a fascinating idea, imagine a would-be dictator setting out to persuade a sovereign people to vote away their rights, end quote. Again, going back to what George Lucas was interested in talking about with the idea of a republic becoming an empire. In addition, both leaders also consolidated their authority through emergency powers. So Hitler receives legislative power through the Enabling Act, and Palpatine gets emergency powers from the Senate in Attack of the Clones. 
Of course, Palpatine says, quote, I love democracy. I love the Republic. Once this crisis has abated, I will lay down the powers you have given me, end quote. Right. We know how that ends, of course. It's amazing how emergency powers outlive the emergency, right? And of course, in the case of Palpatine, he's really created the very emergency that then he is responding to. There's also the army angle. Hitler inherited a Germany with restricted armed forces under the Treaty of Versailles, but he rebuilt and armed those forces and put a new military force behind him. In the same way, Palpatine inherited a galactic republic that had no standing military, but he persuaded the Senate to accept the creation of his Grand Army, the Grand Army of the Republic, using clone troopers. And then, of course, he used those to destroy the Jedi in Revenge of the Sith. There's also similar rhetoric. Star Wars borrows Hitler's rhetoric. Hitler promised a thousand-year Reich, and Palpatine does him one better by promising an empire that will last for 10,000 years in Revenge of the Sith. Both Hitler and Palpatine go on to effectively destroy the democracy that elevated them and declare a new order. To quote StarWars.com's Cole Horton, With power consolidated and a powerful military at hand, both Hitler and Palpatine were able to rule their peoples by fear. Historian John Keegan best summarized the situation in Germany. Quote, Throughout Hitler's empire, coercion, repression, punishment, reprisal, terror, extermination, the chain of measure by which Nazi Germany exercised its power over occupied Europe. End quote. In the fictional Star Wars universe, Tarkin summarized the situation in Episode 4. Quote, fear will keep the local systems in line. End quote. And of course, we see one of the ways this fear is communicated is through the destruction of inconvenient populations. In the Star Wars universe, whether that is Order 66, the destruction of the Jedi, the enslavement of the Wookiees, or even the genocide of the Lasats on Lusan. One of the repeated themes, in fact, in Star Wars Rebels is that no one who meets Zeb can figure out what he is, and that is because they haven't seen one of his species before. Why? Because his people were wiped out by the Empire. And certainly I could go on and on about the World War II influence on Star Wars, even from a cinema angle. For example, the influence of 1942's film Casablanca on the creation of the Moss Eisley Space Cantina, or the influence of the 1955 film The Dam Busters on the final attack sequence on the Death Star in A New Hope. I could go on and on, but for today, what I really want to underscore is the fact that George Lucas was consciously using lessons that he believed could be taken from history to shape his narrative in the prequel trilogy and to tell a story about how a republic becomes an empire, how a population chooses to vote in dictators and vote away their liberty. In short, how fragile a thing democracy can be. 
So I hope this quick and dirty discussion of how the Roman Republic falling to the Roman Empire, of how Napoleonic France and Nazi Germany all contributed to the thinking of George Lucas and ultimately to the Star Wars saga. And that, for now, ends my discussion of Star Wars. I will be back next time with a different topic, believe it or not. I do hope you've enjoyed the last few segments, and my goodness, there is a lot to talk about in 2016, and I look forward to being back with you again soon with another look back into genre history. Thank you. Ames, thank you so much. You know what I mean? Just, man, idiot. <laughs> what madness are we doing to ourselves? There we go. Ames, thank you so much. So that is Starship Sovas, show 419. Can it get better than that, man? Or could it? There you go. Until next week, I would just like to say good night from me. survive this terrible ordeal? Can they win through with their integrity unscathed? Can they escape without completely compromising their honor and artistic judgment? Tune in next week for the next exciting installment of This presentation has been brought to you by the District of Wonders Network, dedicated to podcasting the finest genre fiction. You can learn more about the District of Wonders and their many literary productions at their website, www.districtofwonders.com. Thank you for listening.